All right, if you get your bulletin out here for a minute, I, I got a little wordy here in my review, um, so, but it was so important. I, I thought we would actually just read this as kind of a summary of our main application point from last week. So if you have your bulletin, just follow along with me if you would, please. Satan is the prince of this world and has an army consisting of one-third of the angelic host. They work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, desiring to lead us into sin. They desire to deceive us, discourage us, and if possible, destroy us. This is the war of wars. And beloved, we must live like we believe this to be true. Satan and his demons are cunning and extremely deceitful. They present to us lies that promise good things, peace, prosperity, happiness. These lies, if believed, are then acted on by us and we enter into sin. After we sin, only then do we realize the sin does not deliver what was promised and the attack continues. Guilt, condemnation, more lies, more deceit, more sin. And if we enter into that, we we enter into the downward spiral. When we sin, we're often tempted to blame others. No different than the Garden of Eden. Blame our circumstances, even blame God. We may be tempted to minimize our sin by encouraging others in their sin, sin partners. Some choose to live with their sin in secret. Others boldly exhibit their sin to the world. One of the great deceptions is the justification of our sin through good works. We come to believe as long as we do certain things, like attend church, give to those in need, attend Bible study, our sin is forgiven. The reality is only God can forgive our sins. Only God can take away our sins. Only God can make acceptable payment for our sins. Only God can redeem us and adopt us out of Satan families and into his. Beloved, we're called to pray, confess, and repent. We're called to pray and ask God to examine our hearts and reveal the sin that lives within us. We're called to forgive others who sin against us so that we might be forgiven. We are called to sanctification as we move from slavery to sin, into slavery, to righteousness. We're called to put on an attitude of Christ, having faith in God and obedience to His Word. Amen. And we'll pick up in the text, if you open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 26. We'll pick up so it looks like if, the, if everything works out according to my plan, which may not be God's plan, we have 26, 27, and 28. We have today and two more weeks when we'll be through Acts. So we'll see if that works out. So just uh, bringing everybody up to speed, get us back into the historical setting and the context. If you remember, Paul had been in prison for two years at this point in Caesarea. He had, he had gone to a trial, you remember, with Hephaestus uh, as the new governor, but the old, old governor was Felix. He, he stood a trial before Felix, and, and Felix saw clearly that he was not guilty, but he wanted to earn favor with the Jews, so he kept Paul in prison, and he also hoped that Paul would give him a bribe. And so Paul's been in prison for two years, even though he's innocent uh, by every trial that he's faced. And we saw last week there was this new governor named Festus, that, that came to be uh, in charge of Caesarea. And he also 
was, we, from what we know, he was a good governor. He went right to Jerusalem, and, and, he, and he sought out the Jewish religious leaders to find out what was going on, how could he bring peace back to Jerusalem with the Roman Empire. And the first thing the Jews said was, hey, bring us Paul, we want to try him again. And he's, he's probably in a dizzy, doesn't even know who Paul is at this point. He says, hey, well, listen, I'm going back to Caesarea. Why don't you come with me and we'll, and you can, we'll try him there, this man you're talking about. And he didn't know it, but that was the sovereignty of God because if he obeyed them, they would have killed him in transit. That was their plan, but the sovereignty of God wouldn't let that happen, so the trial went back to Caesarea. You still with me? We're almost there. Then Festus tries him again, and, and, and through the whole trial, he found nothing wrong with Paul either. It was the same trial all over again. He said, what are you guys talking about? There's, there's, no, there's no witnesses. There's no evidence. There's really nothing here to accuse Paul to hold him of any crime. But again, him desiring to win the favor of the Jews said, you know, Paul, would you be willing to go back to Jerusalem and, and continue the trial there? Paul had to give him permission to do that as a Roman citizen. And remember last week, what did Paul say? No, I want to go to Caesar. Send me to Caesar. That was one of the rights of a Roman citizen. He could appeal to their... Supreme Court, and go to, to Rome and be tried by Caesar. And that's the appeal he made. And then we left off, last point from last week, so he, he's going to go to Caesar. Festus went and talked to his council, said he wants to go to Caesar. To Caesar he will go. And then King Agrippa showed up. You remember that? King Agrippa shows up uh, to visit the new governor and kind of encourage him in his work. And he brought his beautiful sister Bernice, which was also his lover. Remember I showed you the the family tree of the Agrippas, not a pretty picture, right? From killing the babies in Bethlehem to cutting off the head of John the Baptist to killing James and desiring to kill Peter. The whole family tree was kind of messy, um, very messy. And so King Agrippa heard this case and said, hey, you know what, I'd like to hear this, Paul. I'd like to hear what this case is all about. And last thing, as far as setting is concerned, and Festus goes, good, because I've got to send him to Rome and I don't know what to say. You know, here is my first trial, and I'm sending this guy back to Rome for the Caesar to meet with, and I don't have anything to write about. I don't even know what to tell him the problem is here. And so that's the setting. And when we left off, remember this is grand auditorium. You picture this huge auditorium with this grand pageant as they come in. Do you remember that? Thousands of people are gathered in this grand auditorium in Caesarea, and they're all dressed to the nines. And, of course, the last people that probably would enter would have been King Agrippa with his sister Bernice dressed like the queen. And they'd march up this aisle. And they're all filled this auditorium. And then the king and the queen are sitting up front, probably in their thrones. And then Festus, the governor, is sitting off to the side with his council. And then in comes Paul into this auditorium. Can you picture that? Is everybody with me? That's where we left off. Okay, so picture that whole scene coming out. And then this little beat-up, in-chains, bald Jew is brought before these people going, are you kidding me? This is what all this trouble is about, this little guy here? And that's the setting. So let's pick up there in, in chapter 26. So here's, they're in the auditorium, Paul's brought in. Then, then Agrippa said, verse 1, Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. 
Now, this was uh, not flattery that Paul was sharing with King Agrippa. The reality is that he had been discussing this case with Festus, which was a Roman, and really didn't understand the Jewish people or their religion. So he sincerely means he's glad to finally stand before King Agrippa, who was a Jew, and he was well acquainted with the law and the customs of the Jews. Okay? The other thing he was grateful for is he also understood that it says controversies. He understood the, the way. He understood the movement of the Christian faith. He also was well-versed in the, in the fact that the Jews claimed that Jesus was crucified, buried, and he rose again. So he was, he was, he was well acquainted with this whole controversy of, of the way in Jesus Christ. So because of that, Paul was grateful to stand before him. Now, we, we've, kind of, we've seen this testimony before from Paul, but this is the most detailed and elaborate testimony he shares. And, and so uh, we're going to go through it again. Hopefully it's a refresher on some of the points, and there's some new points in here as well. So first Paul gives his testimony. He shares his past. It says, The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning, beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. So the first point Paul makes is pretty clear here, but the reality is, is all the Jewish people knew about Paul. Don't Remember, his dad was a Pharisee. They all knew Paul. They knew him since he was a little kid. They all could talk about little Paul, and he was destined to be a great Pharisee, and he became the Pharisee of Pharisees. They all know that he studied under Gamaliel. They all knew all about Paul. All the Jewish people, he had, he had a reputation within the whole Jewish community. He says, they know me. And this thing about being in the, in the strictest sect, there was a, a group of Pharisees that were supposedly uh, extremely committed to the Word of God and did a good job of exegeting the text. They did a good job of actually dissecting the Word and, and bringing out the true understanding. And that's the group he was part of. And then he continues... Verse 6, it says, And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise of our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly seek God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? So Paul says, everybody knew me since I was a child. They knew I was a Pharisee. And the real accusation that I'm being accused of is taking hope in the promise of the Messiah. It's the hope of the Messiah that I'm being persecuted for. That he would come. That he would be crucified. That he would be buried. That on the third day he would rise again and that he came to deliver all the nations of all the people. This is what the real problem is. And he says in here, this, this shouldn't be new news to anybody because it's very clear in the Word of God. Especially these Jewish religious leaders should know that this is the truth that I'm proclaiming. Now look up here for just a minute. You have to remember that when we hear Paul uh, defending the Word of God, it is the Old Testament. Right? There was no New Testament yet. So Paul would have, look up here, I mean, these are some of the verses Paul would have shared with them 
to say, this is the truth. This is what I'm standing for. This is the hope that all of our people believed in. And beloved, hear me on this. All the Jews had the same hope. They were all hoping for this Messiah. So things like Psalm 22:16, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Or Isaiah 53:12, Therefore will I give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You know, for a Jew, there would be no doubt that this is the Messiah. That's, who, that's what these verses are referring to. No one else can make intercession for the transgressions. No one else could remove the sin. And it says clearly that he came and he must die. So Paul said, part of my hope is that Jesus came, to, the Messiah is going to come to die. The other part about the resurrection, all the Jews believed in the resurrection except for the Sadducees. Verses like this out of the Old Testament, but indeed, but I'm sorry, but your dead will live. Lord, their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew in the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. We believe in the crucifixion. We believe in the resurrection. And the other thing that the Jews were mad about was the fact that the gospel was for all nations. It wasn't for Jews alone. Isaiah 11.10, In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations, all people, will rally to him. And his resting place will be glorious. Or Isaiah 42.1, Here's my servant who I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I put my spirit upon him and he brings justice to the nations. To the nations. So it was clear that Jesus, the Messiah, would come to die, that he would be raised from the dead, and that the gospel would be offered to all people. Now one other one I'm just going to give you to put in your mind here as we go through this. I'm sure Paul didn't share this with him at this time, but and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of, of offense and a rock of stumbling for, to both the house of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the other part of the prophecy is it's no surprise to Paul that his people don't understand the gospel. Do you get that? I mean, that's what Paul was proclaiming. This is the hope. It's because of all these prophecies that are being were fulfilled through the Messiah that these guys are ticked off at me and they want to kill me. But it's clear in the Word of God that this is what was supposed to happen. Right? Now look at this where Paul goes next in his, in his testimony, picking up in verse 9. It says... I love this. He connects with the people. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them in foreign cities. So what Paul's saying is, I too was convinced. I too was convinced that this was a scam. That, that Jesus... He died, yeah, he was crucified, but the, the, the apostles came and stole his body. I believe this was a false religion. 
And, and I, I believe that I was serving God by going out and persecuting these Christians. I was, I was imprisoning them. I was killing them. I was torturing them and making them blasphemy in the name of Jesus Christ. I, that, I believe that. I, was, I, I believe what you once believed, that he was not really the Messiah. That's what he's saying to them. So he says, I believe like you believe. I was not looking for Jesus. I believe Jesus was dead and the disciples sold his body. And he was obsessed, it says, going city to city to find these so-called followers of the way. Okay, next, uh, verse 12, we pick up with his salvation. We've heard this before, but it's such good news, we're going to hear it again. Because it's in the text, one verse at a time. But look at this. It says, on one of these journeys, and on one of these journeys to foreign nations to, to, to persecute the Christians, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the, high, of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, I love he brings him into it, probably was drifting off at that point. Hey, King Agrippa. And I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So here, beloved, here's Paul. I mean, he's, he's a faithful little Jew. He was raised in the Jewish community. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the Word of God inside and out, right? And he believed in the depth of his soul that he was serving God by persecuting Christians. That's what he believed he was doing. And uh, let me ask you this. Does it seem like Paul might have been a seeker? Do you think he was, should we be seeker-friendly to Paul? I'd be scared to death to share the gospel with Paul, right? Because that means imprisonment, torture, maybe even death. He, beloved, he wasn't looking for Jesus. He, you know, he was not looking for him. He believed he was dead. He was so full of conviction. And I want you to understand that he was thoroughly trained in the Word of God. Yet he was so deceived that he believed he was serving God by persecuting the Christians. And then what's amazing is I, I think we could all attest to this. I see this as a small portal from heaven opening up. A very small portal. The size of a pin or less because if it was any bigger than that, the glory of God would have killed them instead of knocking them to the ground and blinding Paul. But, but Jesus just revealed a little teeny bit of the glory of heaven. They all got thrown to the ground on their faces. Paul was blinded until God healed him three days later. And what's amazing here is so God gets his attention with his glory, but he saves him through his word. I don't want you to miss that. So it says here, it says, We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying in Aramaic, which is the common language of the Jews, by the way, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Isn't it amazing that God knows your name? Doesn't that encourage you that God knows your name? He doesn't only know your name, but if we could ever come to face with Jesus, which we all will uh, one day, He knows everything about us. He knows all of those things that we think are secrets. He knows all of our sins. He, when He looks into you in your eyes, 
He, you will understand that He knows everything about you. And we see Him calling Him by name. The God of the universe calling us by name. Isn't that an unbelievable truth? And I pray there was a day that God called you by name. Called you into His family. And just like this, with the glory of God, the portal of heaven opened and you reve He revealed to you your sinfulness and your great need of a Savior. And he says it's hard for, for you to kick against the goads. Now what is a goad? I mean, just so you understand, the goad was a sharp stick, a pointy stick that they'd use to prod the cattle, to move the cattle along. Now if you have a sharp stick, do you think it'd be a good idea to kick it? No, it probably wouldn't be a good idea to kick a sharp stick. Think so, Delio? No, okay. But yeah, so we shouldn't be kicking sharp sticks. And what he's saying is really, to the way I picture this, he said, Paul, you've seen testimony upon testimony that I am the Messiah. From the moment that Stephen was being stoned, you heard the gospel and you know the word and you know what Stephen was saying was true. And as you've gone town to town killing these Christians and persecuting them, you've seen the faith they have, an undeniable faith, and they've been sharing the gospel with you. And Paul, all your work to try to stop me is just spreading the gospel throughout the world. Do you want to continue to fight against God? How's that working out, Paul? Are you making any progress? The answer is no. And so he says, stop fighting against me. And this verse, we talked about this last time we were at this, but I love this. He says, Then I asked, on his face, trembling, full of fear, Who are you, Lord? And he got the answer he most dreaded, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have prepared to you, to, I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen and will see of me. So he heard that it was Jesus. We talked about that last time. I mean, Paul had to just be overwhelmed by the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. He, put it this way, brothers and sisters. How would you think Paul received it? He'd been killing the children of God. He'd been imprisoning the children of God. He'd been making, torturing people and making them blasphemy the name of Jesus Christ. And now he finds out that it was the Savior. And you've got to remember, Paul was... Paul was a man all about God. He loved God. He thought he was serving God. And now he finds out that he had been actually persecuting God's kids. The other thing I want you to see in this text is thousands of people in this auditorium, including King Agrippa and Festus, he boldly proclaimed, I am an eyewitness to the risen Lord. I am an eyewitness. I saw the risen Lord. And then he says to him, you're going to be a slave and a witness. Servant and witness for, for what you've seen and what you will see. Now I want you to picture this, beloved, is that um, Paul was a very proud man. He was a very proud man. He was a man of very high position within the Christian faith, within the, Christian faith, within the Jewish faith. He worked directly for the high priest. I can tell you this, he was paid very well. 
So he's a man that had power. He worked right for the high priest. He had possessions. He was well paid. He, he probably was in the Sanhedrin, which they got a cut of the temple, uh, the temple taxes. So he's a, a man of position. He's a man of power. And he's a man of possessions. And he meets Jesus and he said, I want you to be my slave. Do you know what that meant? No power, no possessions, right? I mean, he was a hero of the Jewish people. Here goes Paul off to another country to get those nasty Christians. And now Paul was leaving this great position of power and possessions and popularity to become ridiculed, persecuted, beaten, stoned, imprisoned, continually attempted to be murdered by the Jewish people. Sound like a good job change there? (laughs) But Paul, that just shows Paul's commitment to God because, as we'll see, he immediately took the the new job offer. But Jesus encouraged him with this. He says, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them Look at this. Jesus tells them the gospel here. Don't miss this. He goes, I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. Why? So that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by the faith in me. Jesus clearly and boldly presents the gospel to Paul. Do you see that? Anybody else get excited about that? Amen. Jesus, this is Jesus speaking here, presenting the gospel. So what is the gospel? It's, it's when our eyes are open to the reality. We're, we're, we're delivered from the deception of the evil one, the prince of this year, and we begin to see clearly the lies and the, and the sin that fills the world. And we also see ourselves from the darkness to the light. We begin to see the reality of the world around us, and we see our own sinfulness. And see, when we see our own sinfulness, we, we begin to see the power of Satan versus the power of God that Jesus talks about. And he said, why? So that. It's revealed to us so that we may be forgiven for our sins, that we may confess and repent and be brought into the family of God. That's the purpose behind it. That's why our eyes are open. Amen? Amen. So, Jesus gives them an assignment, which is obviously the gospel. Now just look up here for a second. I, I got a lot of verses for you today, but it's all good for you, right? All right. But just look at this. I just love this. This is kind of picture of Paul. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. Are you ashamed of the gospel? I will no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do you want to live that kind of life? Does that sound like a mediocre life to you? To live for the gospel. So, Paul shares this testimony uh, with the thousands in this auditorium. 
tells him he was a good Jewish follower. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. They all know my story. They know I was the persecutor of the Christians. I believe that too, but I was saved. I met Jesus Christ, and he delivered me. And here, here he tells the king here my obedience in verse 19. He says, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus and then to those in Jerusalem in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. This is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. So, beloved, what we see here clearly, from the moment of salvation, Paul obeyed that command. He walked away from his power, his possessions, his popularity. He was no longer the hero of Jerusalem. He was the hated one of Jerusalem. We saw when he got saved, what did he do? First, he started sharing the, the, the gospel in Damascus, and the Jews tried to kill him. Then he went to Jerusalem, boldly shared the gospel, and they tried to kill him there. And as we've been walking through Acts, his three different missionary journeys, he was faithful to the gospel everywhere he went, was he not? And everywhere he went, what did he receive? Ticker tape parades, except they were throwing stones instead of confetti, right? So he was constantly persecuted, but he was obedient day after day to the gospel of Jesus Christ, even under all that pressure and persecution. And he says, even to this day, here I am before a king in this auditorium filled with thousands of people, and I'm still obedient to my call. I'm sharing the gospel with all of you. But I love this. He said, but God has been with me in the whole time. He's watched over me. He's protected me. Now I want to talk the main application point for today, which is on the cover of your bulletin, is obedience to the gospel. So I want to talk about that for a few minutes. Now, let me ask you this. When you hear the word obedience, what happens inside? <laughs> Phil said, uh-oh. So you feel, uh-oh. I mean, isn't, I mean, for a lot of us, obedience can be what? A bad word, right? We think it's legalism, or I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word obedience. But brothers and sisters, is that not the rebellious nature living within us? Shouldn't we desire to be obedient to God? Don't you think that sounds like maybe a good thing? But we heard the word obedience, we're anyway, like, oh, I don't want, this is going here he goes legalism, or whatever you're thinking. But obedience is a good word. Obedience is a good thing, and you're gonna, I'm going to hope to show that to you with a few verses here. You good? Let's, all right, amen. Let's go through some obedience verses. I promise they will be encouraging, not painful. The first thing here in 1 Samuel is, uh, but Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Very common verse, I think you all know this. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than to the fat of rams. I, I just got to say, uh, the reality is, is a lot of us, again, are deceived by the good works type theology, that uh, the good works outweigh our bad works, but really that's not true. 
But the reality is, is that God desires obedience over sacrifices. So don't try to pay your way out of your sin because it doesn't work. It's through the blood of Jesus, through grace and faith alone that you're saved and you need to confess and repent to Jesus. Now take a look at the second verse here. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I just got to say, I mean, I see this all the time. I, I work in the marketplace, and uh, people have lots of different hats they like to wear. They act one way when they're in church, one way they're, when they're at home, one way when they're at work, and let, let me put it this way, another way when they're alone. And really this verse is saying, that's not how you're called to live. That's not how we're called to live. We're to be obedient all the time to God. Because guess what? God is always with us anyway. Who do you think you're fooling? But I'm telling you, if you, if you, if you find yourself living this compartmentalized life that you're different in church, oh, God bless you, brother. You know, oh, amen to John 3.16, and I'm going to quote verses to you. And as soon as I get out of here, I'm cursing at everybody in traffic. That's not it. It's, that's not a transformed life. That's a legalistic life. See, we need to be the same all the time. That's a transformed life. Who are you really? And that's what this verse is. Now hang on here. We've got a few more good ones. We de- demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to make it obedient. I want to show you this morning that we're obedient in our behavior, we're obedient in our thought life, and we're obedient in our heart with our emotions. Do you hear that? This is so important you get this. Legalism for the Jews was behaving rightly on the outside. It's the behaving part. But see, one of the ways we can sin all the time without anybody know, you could be sinning right now in your minds and no one would know it. You could be thinking things you shouldn't be thinking. Right? And that's why we're commanded to keep each thought captive. We've got to keep our minds pure and obedient to God as well. You see that? I mean, here's, here's, here's some good news. is I can go through my day in meetings and on phone calls and in the marketplace where I work, And I can be praising God and praying God and reciting verses all day in my mind too. I can use it for His glory, right? People don't know I'm doing that either. But I also could be, my mind could be filled with anger. I could be hating someone in my mind and talking to them, oh, hi, how are you, you know? And inside I got this this sin going on inside. I could be looking at someone, talking to them, but inside I'm really lusting. And they, oh, hi, you know, nice to see you. Do you see that? That's why we've got to keep each thought captive. You've got to keep your mind pure. That's the battlefield. If he can win over your mind, he's going to lead you into behavior. But don't be a Pharisee and just think it's behavior only. You've got to keep each thought captive. You've got to be obedient in your mind as well as in your behavior. And so those thoughts come. What do we do? We pray. We give them to Jesus. It says, keep me each captive to Christ. Here you go. I don't want this. This doesn't belong here. And we begin to purify our mind. We don't let those things live in there. Hatred. Bitterness, lust, anything that's in there, you know Jesus doesn't want it in there. Give it to him, get rid of it, 
and then pray it and keep it out of there. And you know what? I'll tell you this as a personal testimony. As I've done that over my life, guess what? I don't have that many battles up here anymore. Not that I don't have them. I just don't have that many. When I first got saved, I had all kinds of them because he had had strongholds and footholds and all kinds of stuff going on. But over time, as I prayed him out, he's purified my mind. He's given me a new mind. I don't have those kind of thoughts anymore. Amen? So obedience isn't just in behavior. We can all pretend to be Christians, but in our, in our minds we need to be obedient as well. Now let me show you another one. Just a few more. Romans 6, uh, 17 says, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves of sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that now has claimed your allegiance. Beloved, we also have to be obedient with our emotions. I can't tell you how many Christians I meet that their emotions are their engine, the locomotive. The, the, your emotions are the caboose. The emotions are under your control. The emotions are under your direction. And you have to make your emotions obedient to Christ too. I mean, could you imagine what life would be like if everybody just lived based on their emotional feelings all the time? First of all, I wouldn't be here this morning because I didn't feel like coming to church today. I really didn't. Sorry to admit that, but, you know, I have those days too. I don't want to go to church. I think I just want to come here every Sunday. Right? No. But if, that, if, I, if I did that, well, I'm not, you know, I don't feel like going to church. I'm not going today. And you could have said that too, right? I'm sure not all of you want to be here today. But you see, Emotions are a great gift of God to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, but they have to be controlled and submitted to the authority of God. You have to make them obedient to, to, to Christ. Amen? And what happens if we let our emotions rule our life? We end up in a lot of trouble. We end up in a lot of trouble. So I want you to see that this obedient life is in behavior, yes. In our mind, more difficult, but yes. And in our emotions, yes. All those have to be submitted and controlled. Okay, stay with me a few more minutes. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. I mean, brothers, just got to tell you, I got to pray these prayers daily. I have to pray these prayers daily to live the obedient life. I desire to live the obedient life for Jesus Christ. And I need God's help. Do you? You need to pray it. Help me obey you, God. Help me control my thoughts. Help me control my emotions. He will help you. Look at this one. I got a few more here, I promise. Look at this one, though. But James 1.25. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives what? freedom and continues in it not forgetting what they have heard but doing it they will be blessed in what they do do you believe that do you really believe that in living the obedient life there's freedom and in blessings you do amen augustine said yes i'll give you this analogy uh, not illustration true just happened we're hiring a new salesman where i work and uh, he's not a believer. Uh, 
great skill set. We don't hire just Christians, but this guy came in, and we kind of go over our core corporate values, and the first one is to honor and glorify God in all we do, and we kind of walk them through our core values to work in our company. But, you know, he works out in uh, the Detroit area, and one of the big things there is to take customers to strip clubs. That's huge in the automotive market, in case you didn't know that. So we kind of went through all these things and said, you know, I've got to tell you that these are, you know, you understand these core corporate values. You don't need to be a Christian, but you need to follow these to work here. And any of these that are broken are, are terms for term, are reasons for termination. If you lie to a customer, if you steal, if you take customers to strip clubs, any of that, you'll, you'll be terminated because it dishonors God. Because really the way we look at it, it's not our company, it's God's company. We're just temporary stewards of this company, and eventually it'll be somebody else's. So this guy, he's not a believer, I hear this. He goes, oh, thank God. <laughs> but see, I want you to hear this, because he hated taking customers to strip clubs. Even though he wasn't a believer, he hated it. But you know what? Now he can tell them, he goes, hey, can't do it, company policy, right? So now he has freedom in the law that he doesn't need to do that anymore. Isn't that beautiful? But that is the freedom that comes from God. As we obey it, I, I don't need to say that the company said to do it. I can say I don't do it because God told me not to do it. And there's freedom in that. I can live a righteous life because God wants me to. And there's the freedom. And by the way, blessings. I'm not talking about Rolls Royces and houses. I'm talking about blessings from God. I'll show you a big one right now, the last one here. This is one of my life verses. I just love this. It motivates me. This is my, by the way, I don't have accountability partners. I never have, but this is my accountability partner right here. Uh, it says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. That's big. So, if I say I love Jesus, and I don't obey his commands, what is he saying here? I don't really, I don't really love him. Does that mean I don't sin? Of course I sin. But I'm saying the overriding principle, whoever has my commands and obeys them is the one who loves me. That's all the accountability partner I need. Now it says here too, it says, now here's, you wanted to see a blessing? What does it say? It says, and the one who loves me will be what? Be loved by my Father. Do you want to be loved by God the Father? And I will love you too. And then the last one just blows me away, and I will show myself to you. You see, beloved, that's the motivation for the obedient life to me. That is my motivation for living the obedient life. I want to be loved by God the Father. I want to be loved by God the Son. And I want Him to show Himself to me. I want to experience God in my life. I don't want it to be a theology. I want it to be a reality. I want God actively involved in my life. I want to see prayers answered. I want to see people saved. I want to see all kinds of things that God says he will do. But you know what? If I'm living a sinful life and I'm putting on this little Pharisee life and I'm acting like this and that, I'm telling you, you're not going to experience that with God. It's not going to happen. So the motivation you know, if, if you start going, these are the do's and don'ts of God and I've got to do it or God's going to get mad, don't go to the negative side. Go to the positive side. If you obey God, he's going to love you. 
He's going to pour out His love on you. And He's going to work miracles in your life. Isn't that encouraging? That's why I, I, I'm telling you, mm, this, this is truth. This is a key to life right here. I'm not serving an angry God. I'm serving a loving God. He wants to love you more if you'll follow Him and obey Him. Now, hang with me here. I, I miscounted my slides, but you'll be all right. You'll be all right. I mean, here's one of the things I want to I put on you, brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians 15 here. Here's Paul saying, For what I received I passed on to you is the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. What level of importance does Paul put on this? What does it say? First importance. I'm just going to say that one of the key areas we need to be obedient is in the gospel. You need to be sharing the gospel with, with the lost souls out there. We're co commanded to go make disciples. You need to be sharing Jesus with the lost world. That's one of the areas we need to be. He said first importance. It's one of, beloved, that's what we're still here for. I don't care what you do for a living. I don't care what's going on in your families and all that I do. But, but the reality is what I'm trying to say to you. The most important thing you're here for is to share the gospel. When's the last time you brought up Jesus? And, it, and you know what? If, if God didn't want us to do that anymore, he would already come back. Okay, this is the last text. I'll just read through this, so we'll finish 26 today. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Paul says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. It had to come eventually. The king rose, and with, with him the governor and Bernice, who was sitting with him, with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if not appealed to Caesar. So, I just, a couple closing comments here. Um, one is that we see how people react to the gospel, right? Festus got ticked off, right? You're out of your mind, what he said. You're crazy. Why? Conviction. He's convicted what Paul's saying is true. He doesn't know how to handle it. So he lashes out in anger. 
The king also knew it was true, and he was convicted, so he used his power and position. Do you really think, kind of made a demeaning statement to Paul, that you can, that you can win someone like me over in such a short period of time? Here's what else is amazing. They all thought Paul was on trial. It certainly seems like they're all on trial, doesn't it? So, beloved, here's the, the challenge. I want you to hear the obedient life. It's such an important thing. That's the big takeaway I pray for you today. But also, obedience to the gospel is, is part of that. There's always all different things we need to be obedient on, but the gospel is a key one that we need to obey. Now, let me just close with my own little testimony um, about obedient to the gospel. When I was first saved... The, the job I was offered was to handle the toddler room at the church. That's where I started. Now, back then, you know, we all wore suits and ties at this church, and I can still remember sitting in those little chairs, you know, with these kids, toddlers, wiping the chocolate off their faces and uh, helping them. And I'm terrible at crafts. I, I'm awful at crafts. And I can remember the Sunday school superintendent going, here's what you're doing today. I'd look, oh, i got to make what out of what? And this is crazy. I don't know how to do that. But so I actually started doing some engineering projects, which were pretty cool. Um, I won't get into those. But we did some neat things in that Sunday once I got my mind wrapped around it. But, I mean, that's where I started because that's where God called me. And you know what my teaching was? Jesus loves you. That was my teaching every week because that's about all I could talk to them about is how much Jesus loved them. But I was, you know what, just like Paul, you know, here I was. I was a successful businessman in leadership. So I thought, I still had prideful issues, and I'm going to serve the church, and you want me to do what? But you know what? Obeyed. I sat in those little chairs. That's probably why my back still hurts today. But I sat in those little chairs and was faithful to the, to the toddlers. And then I got a promotion. They said, would you like to teach the fifth and sixth grade boys? I said, yes. <laughs> right? And then I got to start teaching the Bible to these kids at fifth and sixth grade. And I saw many, many kids get saved. And I would tell you, it's one of the greatest seasons of my life. <laughs> Why do you guys make me cry all the time? I saw many kids get saved. <coughs> I can't even tell you that part about it. <laughs> Let's move on. I'll just say this. I still have cards from these kids that were saved in that class. It was a great season of my life, and I obeyed. And then they said, would you take over the men's ministry? You know, but I'm just saying that I don't care where you're at in your walk. God has a work for you to do. And, and you may think it's up here, but he may start you off down here. Just obey. Whatever he has you do, Obey. Thank you. I got my watermelon cue. That's all I needed. Watermelon. Yeah, so I just, you know, I'm going to encourage you in that because it's the ride of your life. It's the ride of your life. You know what? You have people to talk to Jesus about right now. You, you can be serving the king somehow, and you'll be blessed if you do it. And guess what? Get ready. You might start off in a little chair like I did, but you don't know where he's going to lead you. Believe me, this is the last place in my life I thought I'd be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, th we cry out to you.
We pray that you would help us be obedient to your call. Not in behavior as legalists, but in the heart, in the mind, and in our bodies. Where we learn to obey you. May, may our motivation be that we desire your love to be poured out upon us. And Father, I pray that we'd also be obedient to the gospel. For Jesus' sake and in his name, amen.